Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host, Fiona Winch, and today I have a rather unique episode planned for you all. And not just because it's the 50th episode, woo, um, but because I'm joined by my mom. And if you're new to the podcast, I usually interview artists, authors, musicians, anyone of that sort. That's my favorite thing to talk about. And I ask how people got from point A to point B, essentially. But today, I am joined by my mom, Francesca Winch, because we are about to embark on her 2023 trip to Ireland with her tour company, Ergo Tours. We recorded this in one fell swoop, but I did decide to split it up into two parts because it's a lot of information and I just thought um, it might be absorbed a little bit easier by splitting it up. So this is part one. Welcome. Note that there will be a part two to follow. And I really encourage you to listen because she is just so knowledgeable. Like the history that my mom is able to retain always blows my mind. And last year when I went on her tour, she got sick right before we left. And she told me, she was like, I think you might have to leave the tour for the first few days. And I was like, in my head, I I just panicked because I was like, are you kidding me? I just, even though I hear it, these stories over and over, I just don't have the same brain that she has that can just retain history. It's so impressive. And so um, I just kind of laugh. And I think you'll laugh too once you realize or listen to this episode and realize how much that she knows. And no surprise, she is a great teacher. So thank you for listening to me trying to learn what she has to offer. (laughs) I hope I can be the guinea pig for all the questions that you might have as you're listening. As a veteran traveler and tour leader, Francesca Winch can promise you a personalized travel experience, laughter, learning, and a plethora of newfound friends on both sides of the Atlantic. Her love for Ireland has coursed through her spirit from birth. A dual Irish and American citizen with roots in County Mayo and Roscommon, she grew up in northern New Jersey and began summer visits to cousins in Ireland once she was old enough to earn money for airfare. In the 1980s, when this was still the thing to do, she spent summers hitchhiking all over Ireland, and in 1992, she led her first tour of high school students. She's always loved both literature and history, and having majored in the former and minored in the latter, she's designed the tour as a fun learning experience. Having retired after 36 years as a high school English teacher in Arlington, Virginia, and as the wife of a professional Irish musician, she spends the school year immersed in the Irish music and culture that is the heartbeat of her home, and summer vacations visiting family and friends throughout Ireland. Ergo Tours is a progeny of these earlier tour experiences, expanded to appeal to all ages and interests. Welcome, my mom! (laughs) By the time this comes out, I think we'll probably be just maybe a week or a couple of days away from departing on your 2023 Ergo Tours trip. And given what a wonderful educator you are, you always include a couple of handouts to provide a bit of context and a bit of Irish history. Um, so I just thought it would be a good idea to talk about that stuff because some people are more auditory learners anyway. And I think it's interesting. And you always tend to know more than more history than anyone else I know. So um, welcome, and I'm excited. Well, thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. Um, Before we start, though, I want to clarify this, uh, that I was not a history teacher. I was a high school English teacher, but my students frequently 
accuse me of teaching history, not that they necessarily were fond of that, because I think it's really important to understand the context of any piece of literature, the time period, the author's world, et cetera, et cetera. So history's always fascinated me. I was an English major undergrad, but a history minor. So I'm no expert on this, but I have read a lot of Irish history and traveled in Ireland for years and years and years and talked to a lot of people. So what we'll talk about today, I've sort of gleaned over the decades. I started taking my students to Ireland in 19. I was going to say like this, this will be interesting, I think, for people, even even people who are not going on your tour. But I guess explain what the tour is just so that if people are listening who are not going on it, they know why we're doing this. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, in 1992, um, my students said to me, I taught high school English, 10th and 12th grade. And uh, one of my students said to me, Hey, you know, you go back to Ireland a lot. Uh, my grandparents were from Mayo and, um, and I still have cousins there. And they said, why don't you take us sometime? So I looked into student travel organizations and they were charging an arm and a leg and only going to really, you know, sort of tacky touristy places. And so so uh, the small print said you could make your own itinerary, which I did. And I contacted them and I said, you know, let have us stay in youth hostels to save money, blah, blah, blah. And they were still charging an exorbitant amount of money. So I just decided to do it on my own. So I contacted Ireland. And honestly, I don't remember how I did it because this is before the internet and before <laughs> computer. But I contacted Ireland and I got a bus and a driver and I contacted the youth hostels. And I don't know, I don't remember if I phoned them or wrote them, but anyway, I contacted the youth hostels and I put on my credit card and I wound up taking 16 teenagers to Ireland over spring break. And we had a blast. We had so much fun. And the other teachers told me I was nuts because I didn't. Well, you were also like a younger teacher at that point. I was a younger teacher. I was in my early thirties, but I didn't have any insurance, but we had so much fun. So (laughs) the following year I did it again. And that year your father came And uh, the first year he didn't, he thought it would be a a nightmare. (laughs) And then we had so much fun that he was jealous. So the second year he came and, uh, and we had a great time. Um, And again, the the other teachers told me I was nuts. Um, Fast forward, then, then, you know, I I gave birth to you and I gave birth to your brother. And then in 2001, I did it again. You were five and Patrick was three and daddy came and we brought a whole lot of teenagers over and we had a ball. Um, and again, the other teachers told me I was nuts. And then September 11th happened and the school system said no more trips abroad for anybody. They were very nervous. I teach in, or I taught in Arlington, Virginia and the Pentagon's in Arlington. And, uh, it was just all too close to home. And so I didn't do it for years. And then in 2011, I brought your musical theater group over to perform. I right. So I was in a musical around. theater group through, uh, most of middle school and high school and we would do road shows and other things of that sort so right so I often yeah. I often I don't know how shows. that is yeah I offered to set up shows all over Ireland and the board of directors of the organization uh of which you know we're taught we're speaking here um they said oh honey honey you can offer this to them but I'm sure you're not going to get many takers and they said, you're going to do a lot of work for this and it's just not going to happen. But I decided to give it a go anyway. And we wound up having 53 people sign up to go because there were 27 of you, I think, performing high school and yeah. middle school kids. And then 
parents and siblings decided to go. So there were 53 of us and we traveled all over Ireland together and uh, you performed at many different venues and we had mm-hmm. a ball. And it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And then the other t- the other parents said to me, you know, you should make a company so you could get insurance. <laughs> and that's how Ergo Tour started. I don't know. Like you didn't have insurance for that one though? Nope. Well, but were you just like crossing your fingers? I guess so. I was younger and yeah, sort of optimistic. But also it was through Musical Theater Center. So presumably they had insurance, but I didn't even check that. Oh my God. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, now I have a company and I have insurance. And my, my goal was to do this multiple And you time. started doing this in like 2017 or 2016? 2017, 2017. Okay, that's what I thought. It was after your grandmother died. I waited. Yeah. Until your grandmother lived with us, as you know. Yes. And it was after my mother passed away that I just, I got back to doing it again. So um, so anyway, yes. So now my goal was after reti- at retirement to do it multiple times a year. But then, of course, the pandemic struck. Um and so I didn't do any tours in 2020 or 2021. And now I'm going, getting back again, starting last year and doing one tour this year and potentially two next year. They're typically in the summer, but They're typically in the summer so that kids can go. I really like taking kids also, but next year I may do one in the summer and one in the fall. Yeah. Now yeah. that you're retired. Now that I'm retired. Okay. Well, that was, so the company is called Airgore. Ergo Tours. And if you want to learn more about it, aside from what we're talking about today, you can go to the website. It's spelled ergotours.com. Right. It's spelled E-I-R-E. Era is the ancient name of Ireland. So it's E-I-R-E dash go tours.com. The website, okay. the website doesn't have a dash in it, but the name does. Okay. So okay. Anyway, so, that, yeah. so on topic. Want- I, I feel like because there's so much that we could touch on. I will try my best to um, keep us moving. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> I know. I know. Ask I'm like my former students about that. Yeah, I know because you you know so many details, and so I just I know that we could spend hours doing this. But the point is just to get a good, robust um, snapshot at the right. Right. the Irish history because, as you've shared with me before, you know having that knowledge going into it. And I think this is true of any country that you visit, just like having knowledge of the history of the place, the land, the people, the the culture, everything makes the experience that much more enriching. Right. 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 I would agree. Um, yes. So again, caveat, I'm not an historian. Um, I have had Irish family, friends, historians sort of proofread the handouts to make sure there are no egregious errors. Um, if anybody listening to this um, hears any, please contact us so I can correct <laughs> them. I don't ever mind. I'm not. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I'm really not that like concerned though. I feel like you could get in a debate with someone over like, I don't know, like some of the Michael major Collins. players. Right. But right. yeah, but not in just the okay. straight up history. So, okay. So let's get into it. Okay. Um, I've read your handouts. I have questions of my own, but I figured, you know, as a lecturer, you probably know where you want to start and know where you want to go with it. So I'm, I'm going to interrupt you at time to time and ask questions where I feel like it makes sense, but I'm also going to let you kind of riff on what you know. So okay. um, why don't we start from the beginning? Okay. All right. So um, because my tour um, also goes to some ancient sites 
we're going to start with uh, Stone Age Ireland. Um, right. <laughs> this is why I'm like, we should keep it, keep it yes, moving in yes. a way that it's, you know. I made myself a little outline of the handout because as you know, I've got a lot of handouts. I and know. so I'm trying, I'm going to sort of try to consolidate. Like pretend like you're back in the classroom and you only have right, like a 30 right. minute period before everyone Ooh, breaks their lunch tough. and, and yeah, loses yeah. their attention okay. span. Okay, that's going to be tough. But anyway, all right. So the first evidence of settlement in Ireland is Stone Age settlement. Uh, that So Ireland's sort of uh, rich with, I think is a good way to put it, um, cairns, which are stone sort of monument, uh, lots of stones piled on top of one another on top of a mound. Um, they're considered burial cairns, passage graves and dolmens. And dolmens are two standing stones with a capstone on the top. I mean, I think everyone can picture Stonehenge as just a point of reference. Like, similarly to Stonehenge. Um, yes. So they, they date to around 6000 BC and they predate the Celts. And let me say something about this. You have probably heard the word Celt, but maybe in reference to the Boston basketball team, which is mispronouncing its own name. Um, the Irish language or the Gaelic language grouping has no soft C. So C-E-L-T should be pronounced Celt and Celtic. So they should be the Boston Celtic. Okay, this is, <laughs> Celtics. This is exactly I what I mean. I clarify this. I know, but we can't okay. get trapped in these. Okay, okay. okay. I think it's important. I think it's important. Okay. So the Celts were, uh, Celts didn't arrive to Ireland um, until around 500 BC. So a lot of these, um, like Newgrange, for instance, which is a passage grave, a very famous one in County Meath, um, that, that was built at least 2,500 years before the Celts. So the Celts apparently were a loose grouping of tribes that were Indo-European, made their way to Ireland, and um, sort of took, uh, incorporated all of these cairns, passage graves, dolmens, et cetera, into their mythology. And they became fairy forts, whatever, whatever. Okay. So I'm trying to do this, uh, give you a, that, a quick overview there. Um, then we get to, so here we are in pre-Christian Ireland, right? Pre-Christian Ireland, what we know about it, um, we know about Brehon Laws, B-R-E-H-O-N. If this interests you, please look it up. It's very fascinating. Brehon Laws were really interesting. They're pre-Christian pre laws in Ireland that gave women equal rights. So women had equal rights and protection of property rights, the right to divorce. Um, under Brehon Law, women could choose. Were that, was that influenced by an outside or was it just completely? Hard to know. Similar? Hard to know. I don't. If I, if anyone is interested in digging deeper, let us know what you find out. But I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, so equal rights uh, for women. Equal rights for women, right? Brehan law. Interesting. There were also different levels of marriage. Um, there were sort of practice marriages that you could get out of easily. And what year are we in now? Well, this is all pre-Christian. So hold on. And I'll tell you when Ireland was Christianized, because then I want to talk about the Romans still in pre-Christian okay. Ireland. The Romans never went to Ireland. That's what I want to say about the Romans. The Romans went all over Europe, didn't go to Ireland. And this is significant because Ireland was not influenced by Roman culture, Roman law, Roman roads, any of that. Okay. So, and, and the Celts, by the way, were not city dwellers. They were, they did not develop cities in Ireland. All right. So they developed settlements, but not really what, what we would consider to be cities that comes later with the Vikings. All right. So around then the next thing we have that's important is St. Patrick. St. Patrick was in Ireland from 432 to 435. <laughs> now to state the obvious, that's AD um, or 
um, CE, the Christian era. I had students sometime write BC for that made no sense if you're talking about Christian Christianization. Oh, because Saint. Right, right. So right. Saint, right. Saint Patrick was obviously a Christian, and he Christianized Ireland. Okay, he Christianized Ireland in like three short years between 432 and 435. Although some modern historians or more recent historians are saying that there was some other influences going on, Christian influences going on at the time. But Saint Christ, Saint Patrick is the one who's given credit for it. Um, and he set up monasteries or monasteries then after that were set up all over Ireland. And this is the era that's referred to as uh, Ireland's referred to as the land of saints and scholars. And uh, is this at this point, Brehan Law is gone. Brehan Law is gone. But interestingly enough, funny, you should ask. So that. do women lose rights? Oh, wait, wait, wait. No. Interestingly enough, the Irish church was in contrast to the Roman church. The Roman church set up folk you know focused in rome with the pope and everything was much more patriarchal than the celtic church the celtic church actually historians are finding did have female priests and was much more influenced it probably influenced by Brehan law because these are the you know descendants of those same people mm -hmm. so saint bridget who um, when you're talking about St. Bridget in Ireland, it's spelled B-R-I-G-I-D for anybody who's interested in looking her up, was around from 451 to 525. And she founded an abbey. She She's considered a patron saint of Ireland as well as St. Patrick. She just doesn't get as much credit um, outside of Ireland. Um, but you may have seen those crosses made of rushes, made mm -hmm. of uh, straw, kind of. They're called St. Bridget's Crosses. And she was said to have Christianized her pagan father on his deathbed by making a cross out of the straw that was on the floor of his his room and telling him the story of Jesus. So St. Bridget founded an abbey at Kildare. Um, Glendalough, where we go in the Wicklow Mountains on the tour, was founded by St. Kevin in the in the 500s in the 6th century, Clonmac Noise by St. Kieran in the 6th century as well. Um, so Ireland at this point is just awash with monasteries, monastic sites that interestingly enough also had scriptoriums and the scriptoriums think of a, think of a sort of early medieval version of a Xerox room. Um, the monks would sit around hand copying texts mm -hmm. and the, of course the, the, the text they most frequently hand copied were the Bible, but they also hand copied, uh, pre-Christian texts like the Brehan Law text, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, and actually the Irish monks, there's a book, a famous book that was very popular for a while called How the Irish Saved Civilization. The Irish monks were given credit for preserving a lot of pre-Christian writing uh, throughout Europe. So the Book of Kells is the most famous copy. It's called an illuminated manuscript and illuminated, it's called illuminated because it's colorful and it almost glows with the colors because one of the colors they use to paint the manuscript and, and um, detail the, the letters was gold leaf. So mm -hmm. that's why it's called an illuminated manuscript, but it's on, on display at Trinity College in Library Dublin. in Dublin, right? Yeah. Um, and they turn a page every once in a while. It's under glass. And there's a great, great exhibit about the Book of Kells. Um, but that's that's the four Gospels. And it was hand copied around 800 AD um, in a monastery. Wow. And it's probably one of Ireland's great treasures. All right. So so that takes us. I'm trying to move ahead here. This takes us to the You're Viking. Good. The, good, thank you. This takes us to the Viking invasion. The Vikings uh, were 
not warm and fuzzy. Um, the Vikings had these long boats that were very shallow, which meant that it could go way inland into very, very shallow rivers and even swamps. And so you'd be fast asleep in your hut, you know, having lovely dreams. And all of a sudden, wah, the Vikings are here and everything's burning and there's raping and pillaging going on. And it's a pretty much a disaster. So the Vikings invaded Ireland. Remember the Romans didn't. The Vikings invaded Ireland in the eighth century. So in the 700s. And uh, they they're the ones that established cities. They established Dublin because they didn't leave. They established Dublin, Cork, Waterford. Now, just as an aside, as a fun fact, I I think I might have butchered this when I was trying to explain it to someone else. But at that time, were cities determined by whether or not they had a cathedral or what was that about? Well, the Vikings were pagan at this point, so that wouldn't oh. be. But that is true eventually, okay. um, especially true in England, which is very weird because there's a city called Ely, E-L-Y, that has a cathedral in like a pub and a store. And that's it. And it's considered mm. a city because oh. they define it based on having a cathedral. Um, that's more an English thing than an Irish thing, I think. OK. So anyway, so the Vikings invade. So who are they invading? Who are they fighting? At this point, Ireland has kingdoms all over the place. OK, they're like local and provincial kings and they're not all on on the same page about anything really and as you know having been to ireland many times their castle ruins all over the place and yep. that's because there were many many different kings in different areas of the country but brian baru is famous and really revered in many ways because he was a gaelic chieftain that united all of them he, they he united all of them to fight against the vikings and the the famous battle that he actually died all of, in, all of who like his the, the gaelic the celtic or gaelic chieftains all over okay. ireland to okay. fight against the invading uh vikings so the famous battle that he actually died in is the battle of clontarf and that was in 1014 and he died the vikings lost the battle they left the battlefield so brian Baru's army won the battle but he died in the process. Um, but the Vikings didn't leave. Okay. I was going to say, right. They, they right. stayed. They stayed anyway. And uh, they say in Ireland, and I don't know if DNA testing will prove this to be not the case, but the belief, the common belief in Ireland is that the red hair in Ireland is a Viking remnant that anybody has red hair has some Viking blood. Because it's not like the most common hair color there either. No, it's not the most <laughs> right, exactly. Most people in Ireland do not have red hair. Right. Um, probably more than here, but still not most. Um, aside, my hair was red when I was born. I was kind of hoping you were passionate. So maybe you hair. are a little bit of Viking. Know, maybe, maybe. All right. So then that takes us to England. Uh, now, this is where things get a little bit messier. Wait, I just want everyone to take like a deep breath right now and just try to... <laughs> absorb that information because it's a lot so just just as okay, a quick Celts, Celts Brehan Law mm -hmm. okay St. Patrick mm -hmm. Christianization of Ireland mm -hmm. remember no Romans Christianization of Ireland land of saints and scholars then do you Vikings. think the Romans just stayed away because they were busier elsewhere they called it Hibernia, which means winter camp, apparently. And I'm not sure why they called it that since they never went there. Maybe they just thought it rained too much. I don't mm. know. Okay. But, oh, the, the other thing about the Vikings is that they they um, they attacked the, monk, the monasteries and burned the scriptoriums. And so a lot of stuff was lost during those Viking raids. And you know how in the monasteries there are those tall bell towers? Yeah. Um, they, they 
they look like minarets, kind of they're round. They're called mm-hmm. round towers. They're very tall and they've got sort of um, witch's hat topic. Top, sure, sure, sure. Top, yes, right. Yes. Um, well, the belief at one point was that that people would go in there to escape the Vikings. Now they're saying probably not because the Vikings could have smoked them out easily. Mm. Probably. Just I do remember that they were saying something about like the entrance being like high up, know, 20 yeah. feet off the ground or something. Yeah. Yes, yes. But now they're saying that if people went up there and pulled up the, the the ladder to hide from the Vikings, that they could just smoke them out. But I don't know. All right. So. So then we have the English. Here's where things get messy and yes. have modern day implications. OK, okay. Um, in 1150. 1150- wait, before you get into this, I feel like anyone who's listening who is only a tad familiar, mm-hmm. what we're about to talk about is just the the relationship and the the strife and the problems between the Irish and the English. So you might have heard any, you know, variety of this part of history. (laughs) I'm just trying to say, like, I'm sure that most people have like a little taste of that. This is a thing, but but maybe it's not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't get why. Okay. So it starts out kind of stressful, but it gets increasingly more stressful. So this is still now, this is when in Europe, okay, this is before the Reformation. So the only game in town for Christianity really is Catholicism, which is based in Rome. And as I said before, there was a, there was a tension between the, the Irish church and the Roman church because the Irish church was much more uh equitable for women and sort of less structured, less, less patriarchal for sure. Um, and less, less. It's definitely the shortest mass I've ever been to in my life. Where in Ireland? Yeah. <laughs> They're like 20 minutes in and out. Still a difference. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, back to England. So in 1154, the only English born Pope to date, Hadrian the fourth, gave Ireland to King Henry II of England in a papal degree. Now, I, okay, this is the, now, when I was reading your did, history, I don't know how I didn't I didn't know that part and I also don't understand how uh, Yeah, I there I had questions. How can you give somebody a country? Right, right, right. exactly. But remember, well, okay, I'll hold on. But to also that. like if I don't know, English Sarah pope him. like is that was that he's the only one that's ever been English born. Um so yeah, so he gave Henry II like, hi, happy birthday. Here's Ireland. He's it's all yours. And he wrote it over like what? I just Hello? like didn't even know that there was an English pope. So I was confused by that. All right. Um, OK, so then. And so, yeah, not to, more not to gloss over the fact that, yes, he gave yes. it away. He gave it away as but an then, inheritance, as an inheritance. But then 15 years later, in 1169, Dermot McMurrah, who was a an Irish chieftain, um, and a, the King of Leinster, which is one of the provinces of Ireland, um, made the situation way worse. Uh, Dermot had been deposed. OK, he like lost the election or something. I don't know the details. I should, but I don't. So he panicked and he decided he needed an army. So he rode away to Henry in England and was like, hey, can you send me some troops so I can get my throne back? So Henry was like, where is Dermot? Hmm? Where is this guy? Dermot? In Ireland, in Leinster, okay. which is one of the provinces of Ireland. Okay? okay, so he's in Ireland. He's writing to the king. He's Irish. He's Irish. Irish. 
And he's writing to the King of England and he's like, send me some troops. I want to get my throne back. I need some troops. And so Henry was like, okay, sure. I'll send you some troops. Now, 1169, this is after the Norman invasion of England. The Normandy is on the Northern coast of France. And you may have heard of the Battle of Hastings at one point in your schooling. And the Battle of Hastings happened in England when the Normans on the northern coast of France invaded England with William the Conqueror. Okay. I remember once asking my students, the two the two kings that were fighting, whose the armies were fighting, were William the Conqueror and Harold. And I said, who won? And one of the kids said, Harold. I was like, if Harold won, then he'd be called William the Loser. Right. He would be called William the Conqueror. I thought that was an easy question. But anyway, so... William the Conqueror from, from Normandy, from France, won. This is in England. I'm talking England now. 1066, Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror wins. So at this point, for 300 years after that, the King of England only spoke French. All huh. the kings of England, the, the main uh, language in England of the, the educated class, the nobility was French. And one Weird. of the kings, I can't remember which one, could only curse in English. Um, so... So anyway, this is during that time period. So Henry, who was a English king, but of Norman descent, sent over his troops that were Norman troops under Richard de Clare, whose nickname was Strongbow. And do you think that the um, cider Strongbow is named after him? I'm sure it is. Absolutely. Because that's like what our go-to yeah. was when I was studying in London. And I, yeah. I never knew that there was a... Yes, yes, I'm sure it is. He's a really famous historical character. So Strongbow, they won. And, uh, you know, they I, I don't know whatever happened to Dermot. But anyway, they didn't leave. This happens a lot. You send troops to a place, they don't leave. You know, they don't go back home. Mm -hmm. they, they stay. And so Henry II, at that point, declared himself king of Ireland. And at that, that's how Ireland became England's first colony, first overseas colony. Okay. Um, okay. So now Ireland is under English rule and English king for the first time. And that's in the late 1100s. Okay. So the Normans don't leave. The troops don't leave. And they, historians say they became more Irish than the Irish, like they liked it there. So the English crown and parliament became nervous about this because they thought these guys and their descendants uh, would be loyal to the English crown. And so they've passed in the 1300s, they passed the Statutes of Kilkenny, which forbid Normans and Irish to intermarry. But it was like way too late. Like mm -hmm. this, is, this is like 200 years later. Oh, geez. And so, yeah, like they were, that was a little too late, people. Okay, so then the real problem. And the Irish had, that's the, that was the Irish doing. No, 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 no. The Statutes of Kilkenny was England. England okay, okay. forbid because they wanted to keep those Norman descendants loyal to the English crown. But it was 200 years later. OK, so then the real problem becomes with Henry VIII. OK, Henry VIII, as you might remember from your history classes, had a beef with the king of England. I mean, with the, I feel with, like he had a beef oh, with sorry, everyone. He was the king. He had the beef with the pope. OK, so his beef with the pope was his first wife was Catherine of Aragon, who, interestingly enough, was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, who had bankrolled Christopher Columbus. So he and Catherine of Aragon apparently had a pretty good marriage for a long time and were very fond of one another. But she had originally been married to his older brother, Arthur, who had died like soon after they got married. That's and bold. So, 
Yeah. So, well, she it was a political marriage. So Parliament was like, what do we do? We don't want to send her back to Spain. What do we do? What do we do? Oh, we'll marry her to the next son. So they married her off to Henry when he became of age. And apparently it was a pretty decent marriage for a while, but she didn't produce a male baby. And having no understanding of genetics or, you know, baby making, um, gen- uh, gender wise, Henry VIII was thought it was her fault that she didn't have a male heir. They, he didn't have a male heir. Um, they had one daughter, Mary, who goes by the nickname Bloody Mary. Um, sometimes oh, yeah. Arlington students used to tell me at Girl Scout camp that they would say her name three times and turn around. Yeah, in the bathroom and like the dark. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. So anyway, they had a daughter, Mary or Bloody Mary, and uh, and no son. So he decided he would divorce her. And this is after quite a while. They were married for quite a while. And he wrote to the Pope and said, I need a divorce. And the Pope said no. And and of course, this is takes a while for letters to get back and forth between London and Rome. And so the Pope said no. And Henry was like, I'm the king. And the Pope's like, I'm the Pope. I'm the king. I'm the Pope. I'm the king. I'm the Pope. They go back and forth like this for a while. And then finally, Henry says, forget you. I don't even need you. And he breaks off from the Catholic Church and forms his own church. Just which- to get divorced. Yes, which is called the Church of England. In England, it's called the Church of England or Anglican Church. Um, in this country, in the in the states, it's uh, the Episcopalian Church. Um, and I always tell my people on the tour: if you see a church in Ireland that says Church of Ireland on the front, it's that church, okay? Because okay. England was under uh, Ireland was under English control. So, so anyway, he breaks off from the the Catholic Church and forms his own church, the Church of of England or the Anglican Church and makes himself ahead of it. And this creates a, a schism in Europe because some there was a reformation all over Europe, a lot of a lot of different breakoffs, you know, and mm-hmm. uh Scotland, the Presbyterian Church was formed, and uh, you know, in Germany there was a there was a schism and all these different churches were formed. But France, for the most part, for the most part, stayed Catholic. Spain totally stayed Catholic. Italy stayed Catholic. And so the problem became uh, Henry's heirs. Okay, so Mary, his first child, uh, stayed Catholic because she was the child of Catherine of Aragon. But mm-hmm. Anne Boleyn's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, was uh, Anglican, was Protestant. And, she- and Henry had six wives in total. Right. He divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Very good, Fiona. Yes. Um, Yes. So uh, his second wife, Anne Boleyn, as you said, she was beheaded. Um, Her child was Elizabeth, Elizabeth, who became Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen. Virginia is named after her. She was called the Virgin Queen. She never married. She said, England is my love. I will have no other. And by the way, she had red hair. Um, and she she was queen for a long time. In fact, this Elizabeth, I think, was queen longer. The longest the longest reigning monarchs in England have all been women. Mm. Elizabeth I, Victoria, and now Elizabeth and Elizabeth II, who just passed away. So anyway, so uh, all of this caused different alliances um, in Europe to either break or be solidified. And Elizabeth especially became fearful that the Spaniards would use Ireland as a springboard to invade England. Um, And it probably wasn't an unrealistic fear 
um, because the Spanish Armada actually did try that. Um, and many ships sunk off the west coast of Ireland. Um, but also during Elizabeth's time, there's a lot to say about this. During Elizabeth's I feel like there's time, actually a new show out about her. Did oh, you see that? I would definitely watch it. She was fascinating. During Elizabeth's time, Ireland was deforested. Ireland actually was a sort of temperate rainforest, apparently, in ancient times. And 80% of the country was covered in forest. Which um, is like, if you if you haven't been... I mean, you've seen pictures of just right. fields, like, fields, fields. Right, right. There's like 15 trees in the west of Ireland. Okay, so uh, deforested for two reasons. One was Elizabeth ordered the deforestation so that Irish rebels wouldn't have any place to hide out and that wood was used for the ships. Because as you know, during Elizabeth's time, uh, England colonized a lot of the world and they sort of had a habit of showing up someplace and saying, this is ours. Right. Right. Um, so this is what happened. This is this starts the plantation of Ireland. And the plantation of Ireland has nothing to do with cotton or tobacco or, or corn or anything. It means people. So they planted people in Ireland, just like they did here in America, in the Americas mm -hmm. um, and in Australia and in New Zealand and in Canada, you know, in the Americas. Um, they planted people in Ireland in an effort to keep Ireland loyal to the British crown. So they gave Irish land. And when I say they, I mean the, the English crown gave Irish land to soldiers who had been loyal to Elizabeth. Instead of money, they gave them land, some of whom moved there and some of whom became absentee landlords. So the native right. Irish had to pay rents on land they'd lived on since like forever. Right. Um, they had to pay rents to English landlords all of a sudden. It'd be kind of like if somebody knocked on our front door and said, President Biden gave me your house and you either have to leave or pay me, you know, $5,000 a month. Right. Stay. And so the most famous plantation, and that happened throughout the, the reigns of, especially during the reigns of Elizabeth I and then her successor. Remember I said she was a virgin queen, never married. Um, her successor was James I, who was a cousin, who had been James VI of Scotland. And so he, when she died, it was like, oh my gosh, she had no kids. And so she had a cousin who was James VI of Scotland. So uh, they basically, Parliament basically wrote to him and said, hey, you want to be King of England too? And he said, okay. And so he came down from Scotland and he was renamed uh, James I of England, same guy. So anyway, during those reigns- That's quite confusing. I guess they worked it out. And they may have, may have had to make new coins. So during those reigns, um, the plantations of Ireland were established and the most famous, the most famous of which is the plantation of Ulster and Ulster is the northernmost part of the island of Ireland. And that plantation area was given primarily to Scottish Presbyterians, because if you look at a map of Ireland and a map of Britain, um, Scotland and Northern Ireland are fairly close to one another, just right. across a little bit of the Irish Sea. And so that land was primarily given to Scottish or Scots Presbyterian soldiers. The biggest plantation and, and the most significant historically um, was the plantation of Ulster. And again, plantation. So if you're looking at a map, it's like the northern part of Ireland. Yes. And um, that to give a time frame, that was 1609. That was established in 1609. Just for, just for a quick, like, what year until what year were the English ruling over Ireland? Well, 
I guess, didn't we just say that Henry had declared himself King of Ireland um, in the 1170s, around 1170, uh -huh. something like that. And uh, yeah, so then I, the, the Republic of Ireland didn't get its independence really until like 1923. Okay. So, but we'll get to that. Yeah. I just still not all of Ulster, but in a minute, we'll explain that parts of Ulster are still under British rule. Um, okay. Six of the nine counties of Ulster are still under British rule. So the plantation of Ulster is in 1609. And uh, as I said before, it was mostly Scots Presbyterians who did move over there. They were not absentee landlords like in other parts, other parts of Ireland where English uh, soldiers and loyalists to the crown were given land. A lot of them were absentee landlords. The Scots Presbyterians did tend to move over to the land. And so again, it would be like if somebody knocked on the front door and said, you have to move out, President Biden gave me your house. Um, mm -hmm. Ireland was totally populated. There wasn't empty space. Um, they were the, the natives who, Ireland never had the Reformation. So the natives stayed Catholic. The native Irish stayed Catholic. There was no Reformation in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So native, this is where the, the religious divide becomes because it's really not a religious divide as much as a cultural, political, economic, socioeconomic divide. Okay. So the, the, the natives state were Catholic. The native Irish were Catholic. And the pl planted class, the colonists, were Protestant. Um, in Northern Ireland, they were Scots Presbyterians. In the rest of Ireland, they were Anglican, typically. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, <clears throat> in 16, that was in 1609 was the plantation of Ulster. Um, in 1612, the city of Derry and Derry is in Ulster in Northern Ireland. Derry means Oak Grove. Okay. In the Irish language for people um, who watch Derry girls, for people who watch Derry girls, um, the city of Derry was given to Lo the London guilds and renamed London Derry. Mm. So, to this day, Catholics who are descendants of those native Irish call it Derry, and Protestants who are descendants of those Scots Presbyterian planted class call it London Derry. But the gir the girls in Derry girls are they're Catholic. Catholic, right? Okay. Okay, so if you go to Northern Ireland to this day, you'll see signs that say you know Derry this way or London Derry this way based on who put up the sign mm -hmm. and some signs will say Londonderry and somebody's taken white, you know, spray paint and sprayed out the London part. Mm -hmm. So people have frequently asked me, how can people tell what religion you are in the North? Well, some of its language, you know, what do you call the city? Do you call it mm -hmm. Derry or do you call it Londonderry? That's a dead giveaway. Would they ask those <clears throat> kinds of things to in the North? Yeah. One of my students actually, who, um, went to school there. She was a student at Yorktown in Arlington, Virginia, where I taught. And she had been in school in Northern Ireland because her dad was over there for work for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, she went to a school. Oh, wasn't it the H's or something? H game. Yeah. The H game. Yes. Because to this day, for the most part, and of course there are always exceptions, but for the most part in Northern Ireland, which is still, as I get said, six out of nine counties of Ulster are under British rule still. Um, in Northern Ireland, if you are a descendant of those Scots Presbyterian settlers from the 1600s, um, you associate yourself with B 
being British. You consider yourself well. British. It's part of the UK. And to, yes, and you go to a school, a state-sponsored school that teaches British history. So through that lens, and you learn the alphabet the same way you or I say the alphabet. We say the letter H H when we say mm-hmm. the alphabet, right? When we spell something, we say H. If you are Catholic in Northern Ireland and you're a descendant of those native Irish mm-hmm. who had lived on that land since like the Stone Age and you stayed Catholic, you go to Catholic schools and they have a different accent and they pronounce the letter H as they do in the rest of Ireland, H, like mm-hmm. H. So this student told me her last name was Furbish. And she told me that whenever she was, she was a little kid when she was in the North people, and she introduced herself or somebody said her name, the other kids would say, how do you spell that? And they'd try to, and they would mm-hmm. always ask her to spell it. And she couldn't figure out why until she, somebody told her they wanted to know how she said the letter H because mm-hmm. them that would tell her them whether she was considered herself loyal to the British or loyal to the Irish. Um, and she was a kid. She was like, yeah. I'm gonna- and I right like I don't <laughs> care. Yeah, it's not a thing, right? So anyway, back to this. So dairy, dairy versus London dairy. Now there were uprisings, okay, against this. It's not like the Irish were like, oh, no problem, we don't care. Um, in 1641, the native Irish in Wexford rose up against their the Protestant landlords and three thousand. So <laughs> that takes us to Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell in England is the only time in English history where there was no monarch. Okay, uh, the, there was an Irish, an English, sorry, an English civil war, which most of my students didn't realize there'd been a civil war in England, but there was an English civil war, and the parliamentarians won, and Oliver Cromwell was the head of the military forces. I feel uh-huh. like people quote him a lot. Am I wrong? Oh, I hope not. I mean, I hope you're wrong. (laughs) Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. (laughs) I hope you're thinking of somebody else because he was a nasty dude. Um, He was he was a Puritan. And so Oliver Cromwell comes to power. This was during this. He led the the parliamentarian forces during the Civil War. He Mm -hmm. came to power and he was a nasty dude. He was a he was a hardcore Puritan. And this is in England. He outlawed parties. He outlawed music. He outlawed card playing. He outlawed dancing basically think of the Taliban in England and you've got Oliver Cromwell. He Mm. also hated the Irish, hated, hated the Irish. And so he decided that he, he went over, he went to Ireland. Okay. He went over to Ireland in 1649 and his goal was to crush the Irish and wrote extensively about this. This is very well documented. And he said the Irish could go to hell or to Connaught and Connaught is the far Western province of Ireland where the land is rockiest and, and least arable. And he sold over 50,000 Irish teens into slavery in Barbados. Was that, Um, was, I was going to ask you about that though. Was it slavery or was it indentured servitude? It was slavery. Okay. But there was, I thought there was more indentured servitude. There was, there was that too, I think, but there was, there was a mixture. Okay. Okay, So there was some indentured servitude. Um, Okay. So, um, at, by the time Oliver Cromwell was done, Protestants held more than 75% of the uh, land in Ireland that was that could be cultivated. So, um, in fact, when we were looking for a house, there was a house for sale on Cromwell Drive um, in, in Bethesda, and I wouldn't even look at it because I thought, what if I like it? Like, that would be a real moral conundrum. So, right. So, anyway, Cromwell. 
nasty, nasty guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, anybody listening to this, if you want to look up something sort of gory and fun and bizarre, uh, research Cromwell's head. Oh, God. Said, what happened to Cromwell's fun? head? There's is there is that actual fun? fun? Take, take no, fun isn't the right word. Take out your cell phone and type in Cromwell's head. Um, and yeah, yeah you'll I'm going to get... do it right now. OK. All right. You do that while I talk about William of Orange. Or do you want me to give you a. Uh, well. I'm looking at it and I'm just like, not sure what I'm. Okay. So I'll tell you. Supposed to be looking at it. I mean, it's okay. like. Okay. So when Cromwell died, um, the restoration of the monarchy, the monarchy was brought back because the English were. Hanged sort of... in chains. Well, no, no, no. Cromwell, Cromwell was ac- actually died a natural death, but after he died, after he died and they restored the monarchy, Charles II, they restored the monarchy with Charles II. Okay, he was brought back from France. And when they restored the monarchy, they dug up Cromwell's body. Remember, he was already dead. They dug up Cromwell's body, propped him up and held and tried him in a court of law for regicide, which means killing a king. Right. Because remember, I told you who who did this parliament. Oh, my God. And then they found him guilty and they they decapitated him. Okay, this is his dead they body. They sat his dead body in a courtroom? Yes, yes. What? They decapitated. Very dark. And then they stuck his head on a pike outside of Parliament. And it was on a pike for like something like 40 years out there. That's um, psychotic. Yes, it's there's, I'm telling you, look up Cromwell's head. Okay. Okay, so, so now this moves us to what you learned in school. It was called the Glorious Revolution. So sorry to leave you on that cliffhanger. Please come back for part two, and I hope you enjoy. This has been Fiona Winch and Francesca Winch on Thoughtful Intentions.